I remember with great fondness the conversation which I had uh, some time ago with uh, a man by the name of John Elder Robeson, the author of a very interesting memoir called Look Me in the Eye. And in that book, John Elder Robeson uh, shared about his experience of growing up with Asperger's syndrome. But growing up with Asperger's at a time when, in a sense, nobody knew what that even was. There was really no way for someone with Asperger's to be so diagnosed. And so those with Asperger's were, uh, were terribly misunderstood by the world around them. Of course, to some extent now, that has changed as people with Asperger's syndrome uh, are diagnosed and in some, and in some respects are, are helped uh, in, in making their way through the world and to, to build successful and happy lives. In a sense, John Elder Robeson had to do much of that on his own, and in doing so has come to a profound understanding not only of what Asperger's is and the, the limitations it maybe creates, but all of the ways in which uh, his Asperger's syndrome has also enhanced some of his own gifts and talents, and some of what he does so very, very well can directly be linked to his Asperger's. And that is, in some respects, the, the, the central point of John Elder Robeson's second book, just published, called Be Different, My Adventures with Asperger's and My Advice for Fellow Aspergians, Misfits, Families, and Teachers. In it, he outlines his own journey through Asperger's and, uh, uh, again, sets out to share stories and insights which will be helpful to other people with Asperger's or those who love them, care for them, teach them, and so on. This book is a paperback book from Broadway, and I'm so happy to be speaking again with John Elder Robeson about his newest book, Be Different. John Elder Robeson, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Yes, thanks for having me on with you all today. I am really happy to be uh, speaking with you today. Uh, I wonder if you could just say a word about your first book, which we talked about, and whether or not you also wrote that book with other people with Asperger's in mind, or if that's uh, something of a new focus with this newest book. Certainly, when I wrote Look Me in the Eye, one of my goals was to show people who were growing up with uh, Asperger's, whether it was in their own lives or a family member or even somebody they worked with, I I wanted to show them that life for geeks like us gets better as we get older. Uh, I knew how badly I had felt, especially as a teenager and a little boy, and I wanted people to see that there was a, a future beyond that. And I had that in mind, uh, clearly, when I wrote Look Me in the Eye, but what I didn't realize was the degree to which that book would be uh, adopted as like a, you know, a manual uh, almost for living with Asperger's. And so many people read that book and they would say things to me like, uh, you know, I just wish you would explain things more fully because on one page, it looked me in the eye, you say, I decided I was going to get a job, and then when I turn the page, you have a job, and I want to get a job, and I want to know how you did it. And that's really what Be Different is. Be Different is almost the how-to guide for the entertaining stories and Look Me in the Eye. Hmm. I wonder if you could describe to our listeners the really intriguing photograph that is on the cover. 
in some respects, I think this says a lot about the main point that you're trying to make in the book. Would you mind describing that photograph? Well, the photograph shows some, uh, you know, the birds on the electric line, and you have a few birds on one side, and then you have another bird that's kind of off the side looking the other way, and that's, that is, uh, I guess, really, uh, that expresses how people with uh, Asperger's uh, often see the world. You know, I'm in the same place as those other people, but we're seeing different things. We're looking in a different direction. Do, we're doing something totally different from everyone else. Hmm. And, and I think that is what Asperger's is all about. Right. You do, I think, a, a really admirable job of clarifying some terminology and actually creating a little technology uh, terminology of your own, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, one thing you tell us early in the book is that you take issue with uh, the choice of words of saying, I have Asperger's, uh, because in a sense that makes Asperger's seem like a disease or an injury. How do you like to talk about or frame the reality of Asperger's in your own life, or how would you have the rest of us talk about Asperger's uh, if, if we shouldn't say somebody has Asperger's? Well, I'd say you could look to, the, uh, to other communities in the world of disability with, um, for, for a, an idea of how to say that. You don't say, for example, a guy has one-leggedness. You say, the guy has one leg. Or you say, Jack's blind. He doesn't have blindness. So in the case of uh, autism or Asperger's, Asperger's being a kind of autism, I think you would say he, he's Aspergian or he's autistic. Hmm. Because uh, saying he has it implies that he caught it. You know, somebody certainly could uh, could be born with two legs. He could lose a leg in a car accident, but that's what you say. You say he lost his leg in a car accident. You don't say he got one-leggedness. Right, exactly. So it's a different kind of possession in a, in a sense. You also outline uh, early on in the book essentially the three kinds of people that we should be talking about in a conversation like this. And at least one of those terms is one which you yourself, I believe, have, have coined, uh, and which I really enjoy. I mean, one of them is Aspergian, so that would be somebody, uh, a person with Asperger's. Uh, explain to our listeners what the other two categories are. Well, you have um, proto-Aspergians, and those are the people who have some autistic or Aspergian traits, but they don't have so many of those traits that they would be diagnosed with a disability as children or, or grown-ups. So there are people who are geeks but not diagnosed as disabled. And, and then you have um, the rest of the population, which um, psychologists call neurotypical, and I thought that was kind of much to say, so I abbreviated it to nipical. So you have the nipical majority, the proto-Aspergian, and then you have Aspergian and autistic people. Hmm. So you outline for us again in this book, although I think in, in some ways you do it even in more detail in, in your previous book, but what it was like to grow up with Asperger's at a time when nobody knew what Asperger's syndrome was. And in some respects, you had to sort out so much of this uh, completely 
on your own and, uh, and make your way from, in your words, a floundering 10-year-old to a successful uh, adult. Um, in a nutshell, tell us how you were able to do that. I mean, what was most essential in helping you come to this really profound understanding about Asperger's and you? Well, I think the most essential thing is that I learned um, how to act so that the rest of the world would find my behavior acceptable. And um, I think that is an essential realization. Anyone who is different has to want to change in order to fit in. When you are a little boy and you see everyone around you achieving, say, social success, and you do not achieve success, I don't know what you could conclude other than that there's something wrong with you. And and if you're like me and you want these other kids to, to like you, you try and um, change your behavior to uh, act in ways that will make you successful. And then the trick, I guess, is to make the right choices in how you behave differently so that you make people like you as opposed to making them like you even less than before you started. Right. I'm, I'm having trouble finding the moment in the book, but I think one of the most touching and, and also enlightening things you say in this book is when you say that, in a sense, you knew, you knew that you had great things to offer the world. You knew that you were a, a good person that other people would enjoy, and I just found the moment. Uh, but in a sense, you had to find a way to, to, to act normally enough so that people would take the time to discover those wonderful traits in you. Let me read the, the moment, because I did, did just find it. One of the root problems of autism, we care a lot, but all too often our caring is not triggered by things nipicals respond to, and our caring may manifest itself in strange or unexpected ways. I know I have many likable traits, if only people take the time to discover them. That's the trick. I have to act in ways that make people hang around long enough to see my good side. I suppose what you're talking about there, Mr. Robeson, is the fact that we so often rush to judgment about other people. And if someone appears to be really strange, we don't take the time to be with them enough to look past that maybe initial strangeness to see their other qualities. And so you needed to find ways to be, in a sense, uh, to put it bluntly, a little less strange on the outside so people would take the time to learn what you were like on the inside. Well, that's really important. If you want to get along with other people, you have to learn how to make a good first impression as opposed to making a weird first impression. You know, it's fine, for example, to be truthful and direct in your exchanges with other people, um, when when you know somebody and they ask your opinion about something and you say, well, it's all screwed up and this is what I would do to fix it, it's okay to do that if the person already knows you and accepts you and respects that you're a knowledgeable person giving reasonable advice. But if you've never met somebody and you just say to them, well, you know, you're just really acting like a jerk today, that's going to ensure that you essentially fail with that person and you're never going to get a chance 
to prove yourself to him because they're going to write you off as being obnoxious right from the first words you utter. Hmm. One of the things you, you take us through is is some of the steps that you take in order, for instance, to try to behave with with better manners. And you give very tangible advice, for instance, for others with Asperger's about some of the things that you can do uh, when, when, for instance, social norms call for, for you to do things that to you don't particularly make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, but, but there are, are ways in which you can still sort of sort some of that out. Can you share some of your advice about that? Well, I, I think that a good example is, um, is the thing that uh, our parents said to us when we were little. If you can say something nice about somebody, you can say it. But if you don't have something nice to say, you keep your mouth shut. If you're in high school and, and you see somebody coming towards you, you can always say, you look really pretty in that blue shirt. Uh, you'll never get in trouble for saying that. But if you say, that blue shirt really makes you look fat, that's almost a guaranteed failure, even if you mean it in a good way. Even if you say to somebody, that shirt makes you look fat because you think, well, maybe they should go change your shirt so they wouldn't look fat anymore. It ensures a failed interaction if you say that. So one of my pieces of advice is that if you feel like the shirt makes you look fat, you keep your mouth shut. You don't say anything. And that's still being true to yourself. You just don't say something that will get you in trouble. If you can say something complimentary and you do it, that will open the door to a relationship with that person. Hmm. And, and I think that is, it's so important that we not make initial mistakes that cause our relationships to founder before they even get started. Right. That's so well put. Among your other bits of advice, one that I found really interesting, and I don't think it's just for people with Asperger's or Aspergians who should keep this in mind, but you say, when I speak in casual conversation, I try to start a mental clock in my head. Can you explain to our listeners what you're talking about there? Yeah. What I would do sometimes is uh, when, when somebody asked me what I was doing, I might launch into an explanation of what I was doing, which was often very arcane and technical. And five minutes later, I was still talking, and the person was like either bored or they had walked away. So there again, I had a, a failure in interacting with somebody because I didn't understand that when they said, what are you doing, that really meant tell me what you're doing in 30 seconds or less. It didn't mean tell me what you're doing in 10 or 15 minutes. Right. And then something, for instance, as mundane as remembering to say please and thank you often, that in a sense, in, in a conversation where uh, you might be struggling to uh, do a good job with you know, some of the subtleties, just being able to keep something as simple as this in mind, saying please saying See, the, thank you. <laughs> the real importance of something like that is that, um, is that you, um, you can teach yourself rules like that that are based on logic. You can teach yourself, whenever I ask somebody, I will say, please, can I do this? Whenever you come to a door and, and there's a female there next to you, you open the door and let her walk through first. It doesn't require sophisticated insight into other people or just simple logic-based rules that you can remember, and that kind of stuff counts for a lot among many people. 
And, and it's funny because sometimes people will read my book and they say, well, that's obvious. That's nothing new there at all. But the thing is, it's not obvious to people like us who can't read it instinctively. That's why we are, in a sense, in a different world, because these things may be obvious to some people, but to Aspergian people, they most assuredly are not. Right. Towards that end, you talk uh, about how uh, an Aspergian is not feeling less emotion. I mean, you, in your words, I feel things at least as deeply as anyone else. Um, there is nothing wrong with your ability to feel joy or sadness or love or anger or anything else. What is missing is the trigger. That is, you do not respond to the same triggers in the same way that, for instance, a nipical does. So what does some uh, an Aspergian do in the absence of those ordinary triggers? Well, first of all, things can trigger emotional responses in us that don't trigger any response in other people. And, and we have situations often where a person gets really anxious and agitated and, you know, and he's thinking, oh, I'm really worried about my mom. I'm really worried what's going to happen to me. And another person in the same circumstance says, well, what are you worried about, man? There's no problem. Nothing's going on here. So, so we perceive something that's invisible to other people and we get worked up over it. But then we might be like walking, and I cite this example in the Be Different book, and a person next to us trips and falls. And we look at that person, and she's not bleeding, and there's no sign that she broke her leg or anything, and there's no obvious injury, and yet if she doesn't get out of the street, she's going to get run over. And we say, well, you're okay, let's get up, let's go. And, and a person can uh, look at that and think, well, what an uncaring son of a bitch. I just fell down, and he's, he's not even showing any sympathy for me. Um, but in fact, we gave what we thought was practical advice for the situation. So sometimes we can get worked up, sometimes we can not notice things, and both times we can be totally out of line with what other people are thinking and feeling. Hmm. But it's not for lack of feeling on our part. Right, exactly. I think one thing that was particularly touching um, in your book is when you talk about uh, the rituals and routines that mean so much to you and to many Aspergians. And yet, um, one of the things that is, in a sense, devastating uh, is when those very rituals and routines, which, in a sense, give you a sense of stability and plantedness and uh, a sense that, uh, I mean, help you to, in a sense to kind of hold it together and function, that those very rituals and routines can sometimes uh, get you in trouble or, uh, or, or, or be the, 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 the source of ridicule, depending on what those rituals or routines are. Uh, I'd never stop to think about that particular plight of the Aspergian. Well, that's something that's more troublesome when you're younger, because when you're older, a lot of times those rituals are they're amusing eccentricities to the people around you, or else they're perfectly acceptable. If you're, if you're a kid in junior high or middle school, and you have to sit in a particular seat in the cafeteria, and you will only eat one thing in the cafeteria, and you will only drink that one milk in the cafeteria, you're a weirdo and a freak. But as I say in, in the book, if you do that 
every day as a grown-up and you go into the same pizzeria uno and you sit down at the very same table at the corner of the bar and you order the same iced tea and you order the same exact pizza, you're just a regular customer. Nobody pays any mind to you at all. And yet it's the same thing. Your book, of course, goes on to talk about how, in fact, the way you think and react to the world can sometimes be a tremendous plus. Certainly it has been that for you professionally uh, in in some of what you've done in the music world. Can you tell our listeners a a little bit about that and and specifically about how uh, the, the fact that you are Aspergian has played a really important role in that? Well, I think being different is what allowed me to concentrate very deeply. You know, I acted different, and I didn't have any friends as a boy, but I turned to electronics and music, which were two of my great loves, and because I was socially isolated, I spent thousands and thousands of hours studying electronics and music, and that really took me to the top of the world in that. That's what allowed me to be out on the road with KISS when I was 21 years old because I had invested the time and because my logical autistic brain allowed me to um, to solve technical problems and see things in ways other people didn't see. And, and, and indeed, it, what was disabling to me as a boy turned out to be a tremendous competitive advantage as an adult. Hmm. You mentioned in particular about this ability to actually sort out the individual lines. I mean, to hear from a particular band, to sort out what each instrument was doing, what, for instance, each guitar was playing. And you tell us that there are a number of of great orchestral conductors who uh, are Aspergian, and that particular ability serves them, of course, very, very well on the podium. I think that you've got to be somebody who's really different to have that kind of ability. Anyone who can concentrate so deeply to be standing in front of 50 musicians playing instruments in an orchestra and listen to just the second violin and then give the second violin specific instruction, that's a tremendous power of concentration that ordinary people don't have. Um, and, and it's a perfect example of how somebody who is kind of geeky and weird can still create things that are beautiful for all the world to appreciate. <laughs> Another chapter in your book that uh, stays with me so powerfully is when you recount uh, the story of a very, very terrible accident and how your, the fact that you are Aspergian served you very, very well. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of that terrible accident. Can you just say a word about that, describe that scene, and how the way your brain functions was actually a, a great help uh, in, in that moment? Well, yeah, if you're a person who who isn't overcome by emotional responses when you see something, and you come up on, a, say, a bad car accident, there's somebody bleeding, somebody trapped in a car, there's somebody lying in the road, If you are logical and rational, you may be able to look at that situation and say, this this person cannot be saved, but this person can be saved, and this person's in danger, and this is what we have to do to save his life. So you may be able to act to do the very best things that you could do to get the best outcome for those people, where a person who was different 
could be overcome by the emotion and the horror or the shock of the situation. They could be crying or throwing up or just non-functional. So being logical and rational there again can be a great benefit. Hmm. And, and indeed, a number of people, a number of Aspergian autistic people have found success as emergency responders, as emergency room physicians, um, as, you know, as, as EMT techs, and even as police officers. Hmm. Among the many interesting stories in this, uh, in this book is one story uh, where you were in a restaurant with someone you hoped would come to like you, and uh, everything was going well until you started uh, eating asparagus. I think that's the vegetable. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that was a sort of a humiliating experience where you uh, you do something that sort of makes sense to you, but it turns out there's a a weird behavioral condition, right. and you're not following it. And all right. of a sudden, you're the freak. Right. In this case, you were eating a, this piece of asparagus with your hands, sort of the way a rabbit would, I mean, chomping on it bit by bit and sort of sawing it down little by little, but not the way people typically eat asparagus and of course you didn't even realize something was wrong until you saw this look on her face i mean she sort of looked at you like you were from mars and you instantly realized a behavior that you hadn't even thought about as being strange it felt perfectly correct to you was in fact uh, it looked like the strangest thing she'd ever seen yeah i, I, I only bring only bring that up because uh because i i want to know what did it feel like for you as the person who lived through these experiences and including some of these really difficult, awkward experiences early in your life? What did it feel like to relive them and to write about them? Was that well, difficult at all on, a, on an emotional level for you? You know, it makes me uh, sometimes humiliated when things like that happen because stuff like that happens to me even today. Um, but I then I try and put it in perspective and I think that overall I'm pretty successful you know I've been able to raise a kid and have a family and I have a successful business and I'm able to interact with the people at the company and and so even if I do weird stuff from time to time I can tell myself I'm basically okay but I it's it's those successes that uh, keep me from feeling like a total loser if I didn't have the successes, I think I'd be in a bad place. And I suppose part of what is helpful to you is knowing that the book you have written uh, could really represent tremendous help for other people who are Aspergian. Uh, well, I, I think, like I said, it's a how-to guide for what I did to become successful, and I think that you can translate that to many, many different situations. Have you had much opportunity to actually speak with uh, other Aspergians or, or their families in terms of knowing what kind of difference your book is making, or do, or do you or or do you just have to hope that that's true, or or do you kind of well, know I, that for, for 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 a fact from from talking to others who have read your book and benefited from it? Well, I, I speak uh, really all over, actually. Um, you know, I'm I'm coming to Milwaukee, and I, I I've gone to to Wisconsin. I've gone to to Michigan. I, I've gone all over the country, talking both to Aspergian and autistic individuals, 
Um, I talk to teachers, therapists, doctors. I talk to school districts. Um, so I talk to everyone who has a stake. And, and, and yes, I do get a sense that, that the ideas in the Be Different book are useful and valuable to a fair number of those people. Hmm. Well, uh, even as a nippical, as you put it, I, uh, I so appreciated this book. I feel like I learned so much about it. Having taught a young man who was Aspergian at our local college, uh, I feel like I look back now with even greater understanding to what that young man was going through. I feel even greater admiration for how he navigated his way through four years of college and the friendship which he and I developed. And I feel like as uh, I encounter Aspergians in my life in the years to come, I will understand them so much better. And of course, even more importantly, your book will surely be a great help to other Aspergians trying to navigate their way through the world the way you have so successfully. The book, again, is called Be Different, My Adventures with Asperger's and My Advice for Fellow Aspergians, Misfits, Families, and Teachers, a paperback from Broadway. John Elder Robeson, I thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me today to talk about it. Best wishes to you. Well, thanks for having me on with you.